Morning, everybody. Before we uh, try anything else, um, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning, for this time we have, this privilege we have to gather together and worship you. We thank you for your word, which is truth, which cuts through all the rhetoric and cuts through all the voices of our culture and society. We would pray, Holy Spirit, it would be your voice we hear in these moments. And Lord, might the end result be praise to your name, Lord Jesus. For it's in your name I pray. Amen. Pictures are good. I like pictures. Have you ever been to an art exhibit or anything like that? And you go through, uh, walk by and see these beautiful pictures. Um, we like pictures. They're wonderful. But they're not reality. I have some wonderful pictures of Cindy. But I don't hug the pictures. <laughs> I hug the reality. Pictures are good. But reality, oh, that's far better. You know, the Bible is full of what's called types. They're kind of like pictures. Typology is a word. It's a study of types. A type in the Old Testament is a picture that reveals and points to a New Testament truth. Or to put it another way, the New Testament is a fulfillment of the type we see in the Old Testament. You could say it's the reality behind the shadow. If you've seen a shadow, you don't treat it as the reality. It's a shadow which points to the reality. That's what a type is. Now, prophecy and typology, in a sense, both present pictures of Christ before him coming to earth. They foreshadow the person and the work of Christ. The subject of typology which is, again, the study of types. Jesus is the subject of proper prophecy, and make no mistake, he's the subject of typology. Almost say typology is the other side of the coin of prophecy, for they both point forward to Jesus Christ. Many of the Old Testament ceremonies, regulations, even people were types of Christ. They illustrated various aspects of his person and his work. For example, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, he's walking with a group of people. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John used an Old Testament type because all sacrificial lambs offered in Israel were made to cover sin temporarily. They were a picture, a type of a lamb who would come who would one day take away the sins of the world. That's why we need the whole Bible. Without the Old Testament, there, we, we don't get the full picture. Without the New Testament, we have no explanation. We have no fulfillment. We have no application. Simply put, we have no hope. Jesus talked about typology as he walked along a road with some followers of his after the resurrection. I'm just going to read two verses here. You find them in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verse 27, as he walks along, he says to them, and beginning with Moses 
and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. I, I just get amazed at that verse because what a moment. I mean, we talk about prophecy, right? And we'll, we'll talk about typology and all that, but they're, they're not about us. But could you imagine in that moment walking along and having Jesus explain all the things that said about him? I mean, he was the one walking with them. Oh, what, a, what a moment that must have been. And then he gets to verse 44. We get there, and we read these words. He said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You see, Jesus was intensely interested in Old Testament typology of himself. Because many of the events in the books of Moses typified Jesus Christ. They explained his life and his ministry. Moses spoke of events hundreds of years earlier that anticipated the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus explained to them all the things the prophets said and which were in the book of Moses. And so Jesus spoke on typology before they even knew what that word meant. Now, a type is good again, but the reality of fulfillment is better. Colossians 2, verse 16 through 7. Paul's speaking, and he kind of hits to this. He said, Therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance, the reality... Oh, that belongs to Christ, because he's the reality behind the shadow. Type's good, but fulfillment and reality are better. It's interesting, the author of Hebrews, he likes that word better. He uses it quite often. Hebrews 1.4, the book begins with the focus of it. Is talking about Jesus Christ, and it says, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent way than them. In other words, there's nothing like the real thing. And to embark on the Old Testament or even a study of angels is to embrace only a shadow. Rather hug, again, a shadow or a person. You see, to embrace Jesus is to embrace reality. It's not simply a story we celebrate once a year or twice a year. It's the reality. Better. It's a favorite word of the author of Hebrews. For a reason. We're going to follow through here a little bit. It's better because the types pointed all through Hebrews, which can be a difficult book to understand unless you understand. It's speaking of the fulfillment of all the prophecy in Old Testament types. And he likes the word better because all the types point to something better. Jesus. Listen to this consistent message. Hebrews 7.18, we're going to bounce in Hebrews, so feel free to stay there a little bit. Hebrews 7.18, for on the one hand there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. In other words, because the old covenant became useless in justifying sinners, it was necessary for a better sacrifice to be offered, and we find that, that phrase in Hebrews 9.23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
Well, it's not the only time he refers to it. If you go back to chapter 7, verse 19, we read this. For the law had, not, had made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there is bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Jesus introduced a better hope. If you go down to verse 22, that same chapter, so much more, also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. He's, there's that word better. Shadow's good, oh, but the reality is better. Chapter 11, verse 16, thanks to the, the author of Hebrews, thanks to what God has done, what Christ has done, because we can look to a better country, a heavenly one. I don't know about you, but it seems like the older I get, the more grateful I am for a better country, a better future than what we experience here on earth. Yes, it's filled with great moments, but it's also filled with dark times, dark people. The heavenly place is much better. The promised land of Canaan, which is a type of heaven, is a place the Israelites experience the promises of God, but the best day the Israelites had in Canaan cannot compare to what Jesus has prepared for us. The point being, the New Testament's fulfillment is better than the Old Testament type. You know, the Old Testament's filled with typological people. Now, the fact Jesus was only a person whose life was foreshadowed in types tell us he's completely unique in all of history. As I said before, he's the ultimate celebrity. We read in Romans 5, 14, these words, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see, Adam was a type of Christ. In each case, Paul compares two Adams, the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam acted as the head of the human race and then sinned. The last Adam is the head of a new race, and he did not sin. The first Adam, when he died, we all died. Not the last Adam, through his death, we have life. The first Adam, we got physical life. That's all why all of us are here. Oh, but through the last Adam, we have eternal life with him forever. As we look at the first Adam, we recognize the wages of sin is death. There's no hope. Oh, but the second Adam, he paid the price for the wages of sin. And we have inherited eternal life. Adam was a type of Christ. And so Adam was a type of Christ. Both give life, but the last Adam is better, simply put. Moses was a type of Christ. If you go to Hebrews chapter 3, author of Hebrews pulls this in. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That would be a good idea. The apostle and high priest of our confession, he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses, who also was in all his house, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of these things which were to be spoken later. But Christ, he was faithful as a son over his house 
whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope, firm until the end. God's choice to liberate his people from slavery to sin, one through whom the first covenant came, was Moses. Jesus liberated us from the slavery to sin and one through whom the new covenant came. That's Christ. Moses was part of a house. The Messiah was its architect. Moses knew God personally. Messiah was God permanently. Moses was faithful servant in the house. Messiah was a son over the house. Clearly, the reality is better than the shadow. Aaron was the type of Christ. Hebrews 5, you go there. Verse 1, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 4, and no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, just as he says also in another passage, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Aaron was a type of Christ. Aaron served as a high priest over Israel, and it perpetuated itself, the high priest, automatically. And there are two priesthoods that Hebrews speaks to. The first priesthood was Aaron and the Levites. They served as mediators between God and people. They came to the Holy of Holies, offered sin for the people, in a sense, served as mediators. They offered sacrifices that would cover sin. Matter of fact, the high priest's main sacrifice came once a year. It was a blood sacrifice, <clears throat> excuse me, and addressed the people's sins. <clears throat> it had to be repeated. But Jesus came to bring something better, a better sacrifice. Not merely to cover sins, he came and took away sins. And Jesus, the only one qualified to fulfill this type of Aaron's priesthood. And by the way, he didn't have to offer it every year. He died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We don't need to come year after year after year to have, offer a sacrifice only to have our sin covered. In the Old Testament, they looked to a better sacrifice. All the types of Aaron and all the types of the sacrifice pointed to one who was better would take away the sins of the world. But there's a second priesthood, priesthood uh, mentioned here. In verse 6, you see it according to the order of Melchizedek. Now there's a name for you. Chapter 7 speaks a little bit more about this Melchizedekian priesthood. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is the King of Peace. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Now the Bible says Melchizedek was not only another priest, he was also a king. He was a priest and a king. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. He reigned over the region we now know as Jerusalem. And certainly we would think that a person with such impressive credentials 
would have an equally prestigious pedigree. Such wasn't the case. In the historical documentation, in Genesis 14, nothing is noted regarding Melchizedek's parentage, ancestry, progeny, birth, or his death. He seems to reign carrying on a priestly function without beginning or end. And as such, he's a fitting type of Christ who forever lives and reigns and intercedes on our behalf. And didn't we just sing that he shall reign forevermore? Melchizedek was a type. He pointed to the reality in Christ who will reign as king and priest, high priest, forever. Because we need an eternal priest, not a temporary one. If Jesus was a Levitical priest like Aaron, it would have ended. But Christ is a priest and a king in eternal priesthood, not based on the law, but as Hebrews says, a power of an indestructible life. That's the payoff. You and I have forgiveness of sins. Chapter 7, verse 23 through 24, put it this way, and the former priest on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, this is Christ, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Whether it be Aaron or Melchizedek, they were a type of priest or a type of king. But they're not the reality. The reality is found in Christ, who's eternal king, eternal priesthood. So there's typological persons. There's also typological pictures. Now, I haven't mentioned there. We could talk about Boaz as a type of Christ, as a kinsman redeemer, and others as well. But that would take a lot longer. But there are typological pictures in the Old Testament. There are other things that served as types. For example, Israel's sacrifices. Now, there's five basic kinds of sacrifices people in the Old Testament offered. There were burnt, grain, and what's called peace offerings. And then there were sin and trespass offerings. The first three, the burnt, the grain, and, and the, um, the peace offerings, were made in a dedication to God. But the second, the sin and the trespass, were made for atonement or forgiveness. Now follow me with this. Jesus fulfilled the first three types through a life of total submission and complete obedience. He fulfilled the last two types by his sacrificial death on the cross. That's why, like when we do baptisms, one of the questions I ask people, do you believe Jesus lived a perfect life? That's not an a, a, a in, in, in import, unimportant question. The question is, if you believe he lived a perfect life, you believed he fulfilled the types, the first three types of offerings of dedication to God. Because of his complete and perfect obedience, he fulfilled the first three sacrifices, which were types. And obviously through his sacrificial death on the cross, which he took our place, he paid the price we could not pay, and thus he fulfilled the sin and the trespass sacrifice. If Jesus had disobeyed God at even one point, it would have disqualified him to be Savior. Think about that for a moment. If at any point on the cross he said, nah, this, I don't think I'm going to pull this one, and they don't deserve it, which is true, right? But he didn't. He went through it. And thus, he was the perfect high priest, king, 
and the perfect fulfillment of these sacrifices. Then we have the tabernacle, which was a dwelling place of God. A study of the tabernacle is a type, believe me, is a book in and of itself, because it contained pieces of furniture, which were types. Even the colors were types. Even the wood that it was made from was a type. Gold that was used, prominently the tabernacle was made of two, primarily, of gold and wood. Gold represented deity. It was a type of deity. Wood was a type of humanity. And they're both types as they pointed to Christ. And, but if you go through the purple, all the colors, and all the different things, they're all types that point to Christ. As I said, that's a whole book in and of itself. But the tabernacle, the furnishings, the layout, they all pointed to Christ. In Exodus, God specified how he wanted it built. Every detail. If you go to Exodus 25 and you're reading every detail, you're like, what the stink is all this about? It's a type. They're types. They point to the reality, which is Christ. Significantly important. When you read Leviticus and you're like, oh, this is long. Stop and think for a moment. What's this pointing to? What is Leviticus pointing to? It's a type. They're shadows that point to the reality. That's what makes it beautiful. Now here's a few ways the tabernacle was a type. There was one door in the tabernacle. There was only one way. Anybody got an idea how that points to it? Jesus is the only way. There was a brass altar for sacrifice. He, Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice. The cross was his altar. A table which sat loaves of bread, the showbread, spoke to Jesus being the bread of life. The golden lampstands were a type of light which pointed to Jesus, the light of the world. There was a veil which separated the outer from the inner, or the holy of holies. We know in Scripture from Hebrews 10.20 that Jesus' flesh was that veil that was torn so you and I could enter into the presence and have a relationship with God. So even the veil in the tabernacle was a type which pointed to the reality in Christ. And again, Exodus 25 mentions all those materials used. These materials, even the colors, pointed to the reality of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, one of the translations of John 1.14, where we're told in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and verse 14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Another translation, interesting enough, and rightfully so, says, tabernacled among us. Isn't that rich? Tabernacle was a type. It pointed to a reality, which is Jesus Christ. The purpose of the tabernacle, by the way, was to display God's glory, his majesty. Peter said in his epistle, we saw his majesty. We witnessed it. Isn't that great? The tabernacle was a type, but it pointed to something greater, better, the reality, which is Christ. Jesus is uniquely and perfectly fulfilled this type. We look in the Old Testament, we find out that Israel was wandering in the desert. People were hungry, they're thirsty, and they were complaining. Oh, there's a shock. <laughs> Constantly complaining. Moses struck a rock, and enough water gushed out to water the entire nation. We read that in Numbers 20. The rock quenched the thirst of a nation. But that wasn't just a rock. It was a type. 
which pointed to Christ. And I didn't say that. 1 Corinthians 10 says it. They, the Israelites, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And that rock was Christ. Rock was a type. It pointed to Christ, who satisfies the thirst of any man or woman who would come to him. Then there was manna. Manna in the Old Testament was a type. Israel needed the manna to live. That manna came from heaven. We know Jesus is the bread of life, and the manna was a picture. It was a type that pointed to Christ. Jesus came to give himself as the bread of life for hungry sinners. And the only way to be saved in the Old Testament physically was they needed food and the manna sustained them. And in a sense, really gave them physical life. But the only way to be saved from eternal death is to receive him to our inner being, into our hearts, similar as a body receives food. Warren Wearsby puts it this way, just as the Jews had to stoop and pick up the manna and then eat it, so sinners must humble themselves and receive Jesus Christ within. The Jews ate the manna and eventually died. But whoever receives Jesus Christ will live forever. Matter of fact, Jesus asked that of Mary. Mary says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Do you believe this? It's a question he asks you and me. Do you believe this? Although the Jews in the synagogue thought Jesus was literally speaking about eating his flesh and blood one time, Jesus made it clear he's referring to himself. He's the bread of life. Read John 6, 30 through 35. There's another um, passage we don't have time for, but the manna was a type. It came from heaven. And it pointed to the reality of the Son of God who would come and die for us. The Passover, which is another book in itself, is an Old Testament type of Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. The events of the Passover teach about Christ, and there's an incredibly rich study. But you put all this together. Jesus Christ is a perfect fulfillment of every Old Testament type. He is the reality behind all the pictures, all the types, because all types point to him, making him unique in all of history. He is the king. Here's the, so what? I mean, let's, let's be honest. You're, you might be sitting here going, oh, my God, that's kind of neat. The Old Testament pictures Jesus. That's kind of neat. So what? Well, let's consider that for a couple, mom couple moments. It means God has made himself known in Christ. God's not playing hide and seek. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. He gave all these prophecies, all these types to let people know, I'm coming. He's not playing hide and seek. God has made himself known in Christ. You can know him. And you can know him because he's the reality, not a shadow. He should be our greatest pursuit. As a follower of Jesus, you have him as a certain hope, a real hope. And if all, if it also, think about the fulfillment of types, brings validity to the story, to the Christmas story. All the types and prophecies pointed to that moment when God became man and began his journey to the cross brings validity to the story. And I had to ask if all the types pointed to Christ and to the work of Christ in bringing forgiveness, deliverance, and redemption to experience these in our lives, 
we must turn to Christ, right? <laughs> That's why he was sent. It's what all types pointed to. So if you want deliverance, if you want forgiveness, if you want redemption, you're not going to provide it. Certainly any sense of moral um, associations aren't going to provide it. The reality is in Christ. Unless you come to Christ, you have no salvation. There is no other way. Even the types pointed to that. We must turn to Christ. It, there, was a, there was a comedian I heard recently, and, um, and he made a joke, which is truer than I think what he was trying to say. He was talking about music him and his wife listened to, and he says, my wife listens to this Christian music. And he says, it drives me crazy, because it's always about the same thing, a person being lost and being found. And I'm like, yes, you're right, it is. Maybe you should think about that, I thought. Maybe she should keep listening, because apparently it hasn't sunk in, buddy. It does, it is the same message. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. All the types, all the prophecies point to it. That whoever believes in him shall live forever. That's the gospel message, it's the good news. And if all those types, all those prophecies point to Christ coming, Christ dying and rising from the dead and reigning, certainly we must turn to Christ if we're to experience salvation. If God went to such great detail, the picture point to the reality of Christ, making him the center, the focus of all history, I'm thinking certainly he should be the center and focus of my life. In your life. Your Christmas. My Christmas. If it's in such detail and painstaking typology that Jesus painted for us, that would point to him. I got a question for you. What's your life point to? I would think if we're going to model and emulate and receive the exhortation from the typologies, our lives should point to him. That he would become greater, we would become less. I don't know about you, but I studied this and the Holy Spirit continually pointed me to Jesus Christ, the reigning king, and said, Matt, this is life. This is reality. How's your life look compared to that? God's way of salvation was first seen in a pattern in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, in the temple, but finally in Christ himself. All of it emphasized there was one way of salvation. This morning, I don't point you to a shadow. I point you to a Savior. But you need to understand a few things, that man separated from God. We're under judgment because of our sin. There's not a person here who won't acknowledge yeah, I've blown it. I've sinned. Many statements made by Jesus about eternal life indicate there's a solution to this separation between man and God. We know man attempts to build his own bridge. We've probably all tried it. But Jesus declares himself to be the only way. Jesus is the way because of who he is. He's the only one qualified to be Savior. He's the Lamb. And because of what he did, he died and rose from the dead. And by trusting in him and him alone, you can have eternal life. Have you done that? I point you to a Savior this morning. Have you trusted Jesus Christ? And if you already have, let me ask you this. Have you made him the center of your life? Is, is he the one you point to? Because the applications really are pretty evident. In all his ways, Jesus is superior He's better than the prophets. He's better than the types. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses, Aaron, Melchizedek, the Sabbath, all the priests. He reigns supreme. 
You don't. I don't. There are no other gods who even compare. Put them all on one shelf, and they're on the low shelf. They're not even in the same stratosphere. In all ways, Jesus is superior. And in all experiences, he is sufficient. You don't need a priest. You can't work your way to God. You don't need a list of things. You need Jesus. You need Christ alone for salvation alone. He is sufficient. Many people will be sitting around a Christmas tree, maybe with their lights dimmed, and they'll be alone this Christmas. Maybe they lost someone. Maybe their, their children are spread out through the United States, and they'll be alone. And my message to them is you're not alone. Christ is there. He is sufficient to be what you need. And to the person in despair, lost a job, whatever it would be, relationship ended, Jesus is sufficient to fulfill you in your heart, in your needs. In all experiences, he is sufficient. This Christmas, don't simply remember Jesus or give him a nod of your head. Adore him and behold him. And when you do, you behold the king. Let's pray. I don't even know how to pray, God. Prayer seems so small. I just stand in awe of your word, which clarifies so much for me, and I'm probably not alone. This morning, the pages of Scripture shout to us, come to Christ. He's superior. He's sufficient. All other pursuits are far lesser. There's a better pursuit. There's a greater pursuit. It's a pursuit of knowing you, Jesus, and loving you and adoring you. That's my prayer this Christmas, this day. Might we not simply nod to you or even simply remember you? Might we adore you? It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.